Today from the Global Lane, Christians under fire in the Balkans, church property seized, people arrested. We expected that this cannot and couldn't happen in Montenegro, but unfortunately it's happening now. Forced sterilizations and abortions, China commits genocide against ethnic Uyghurs. Black voters leaving Joe. Will they support Kanye West for president? He specifically says that I am tired of being made to feel like I have to be a Democrat just because I'm African-American. And no singing aloud in California churches. And it's all right here on The Global Lane. Christians under fire. An ancient church threatened by the leftist government of Montenegro. It's a small country, now a NATO member, but once a part of the former Yugoslavia. In 2006, it became an independent nation. 80% of its people are Orthodox Christian, but now their 800-year-old church is under threat. A new religion law passed late last year gave the Montenegrin government authority to seize church property and close churches, all in an attempt to minimize the influence of the church on that society. Well, joining us from Pajorica, Montenegro, to fill us in on this wave of persecution in the Balkans is attorney Vladimir Leposovic. He's a Fulbright scholar and chief legal counsel for the Serbian Orthodox Church. Vladimir, tell us why this new law was passed when 80% of your country and the people there are Serbian Orthodox. For 30 years now, the government of Montenegro obviously is running out of any meaningful political agenda or political goal. So faced with the uh, failures uh, made within its economy policy, during the last couple of decades, the government of now decided to just go for confiscating and nationalizing the property of the church. The way they 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 just want to do that is that actually government uh, claims that the churches and the temples uh, supposedly do not belong to the church itself. We have a situation where the government doesn't want to use the available and well-known legal mechanisms within the legal order of Montenegro. They don't want to prove their claim. They want the church to prove that claim, but check this now, not in front of the regular courts, in a, within the regular lawful court proceeding, but in front of the administrative organ, like the government's body. You had mass protests there, but there's been no change in the law. It's still in force. Even the pro-church politicians have been dragged from their offices and homes. They've been arrested by the government. Tell us more about that. Exactly. Well, uh, first, first of all, the, when, when, the, when the law has been adopted seven months ago, we had a situation that the, there wasn't any dialogue between the state and the religious communities. At least it wasn't the, the case with us. We had the, something like a take it or leave it dialogue. And then uh, the law has been adopted. And uh, just right after that, the massive and uh, so far continuous civic protest emerged. Those protests are interesting because they're happening as a pray, prayer walks and they're unique. They're also celebrating the Christian faith here in Montenegro. They're happening for seven months now in every in every single uh, city of Montenegro. Which is uh, which is really important to mention is that these are the largest protests in the history of Montenegro, while uh, probably the first completely peaceful in Balkans. So we have a new situation. In in a world, uh, people do not want to give up on their shrines and uh, to give up on what they believe uh, the most. So. The government is still is still silent. Uh, we, as a legal team, and I can I can I can tell that with 100% being sure about what are the, what are the intention of the church. We actually proposed just a couple of 
provisions from that law to be changed. And when we ask those changes, we don't ask anything else but to be in an equal position as, as every other legal owner in the country. So we are calling for applying the European Convention of Human Rights and actually for applying the Constitution of Montenegro. By defending our faith and our church, we are defending the legal order of Montenegro. As you mentioned before, uh, what, what makes this, this situation being really bizarre is that Montenegro is a NATO member and also it's a candidate for the European Union membership. So we expect that since we are talking about the international organizations that are celebrating, not just protecting, but even celebrating the rule of law and the principle of equality and, and, and the best practices and standards in, in legal protection of every human equally, we expected that this cannot and couldn't happen in Montenegro, but unfortunately it's happening now. Well, you know, most members of NATO are democracies, and a primary principle of democracy is the freedom of religion. Now, I know some members of the British Parliament have spoken out against this law and the treatment of Montenegrin Christians. So what would you like to see the United States do? There was, a, and there still is, Virginia Declaration of Rights from 1776 that uh, stipulates that, that when, whenever the, the, the dispute uh, related to, to property issue, any property issue, like emerge between two men, uh, the, the sacred rule to be held is the rule of the uh, court proceeding and the court trial. So uh, the protection of the property rights, the private property uh, rights, uh, is, is in the air uh, all over the world for more than 230 years. Then when we talk to uh, another uh, subjects, to government, international organization, as well as our uh, listen or the co-talkers in the United States is to ask them to help us to come to the dialogue, to come to the table together with the government so that the government can really realize that what the, the majority of people in Montenegro are asking is something that is a minimum of protection guaranteed by, I, but by our constitution, but also by all the relevant international legal instruments. So we, we, we just try for, for that kind of a, a moral and, 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 and uh, objective support from, from, from anyone. Vladimir Leposovic, attorney with the Serbian Orthodox Church in Montenegro, thank you for your time and insights. Thank you for having me. International pressure is mounting against China's communist government. Beijing received global criticism for its mishandling of the COVID-19 crisis, and now it is accused of committing genocide. The U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom warns China's forced sterilization of Uyghur Muslims may meet the definition of genocide under international law. U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is demanding that China end the practice of sterilizations and forced abortions. And Uyghur rights activists are calling on the International Criminal Court to investigate. Well, joining us with more is Saleh Hudayar. Mr. Hudayar is Prime Minister of the East Turkestan government in exile. Saleh, it's good to talk to you again, but I guess the reason isn't so good. So last time you were here, we discussed China forcibly removing Uyghurs from their homes, putting them into forced labor during the COVID-19 crisis. So tell us, what is China doing to them now regarding forced abortion? So China has a long-standing policy of uh, forcibly aborting uh, Uyghur and other Turkic babies, initiated its uh, family planning policy back in 1979. In fact, according to the Chinese government, between 1979 and 2009, 
they prevented uh, 3.7 million illegal births uh, in East Turkestan. Wow. I mean, so this has been going on for a while. It isn't something new. Uh, why the attention now? So right now we have actual evidence that the Chinese government is actually carrying out uh, forced sterilization um, versus uh, forced abortions. Um, uh, hundreds of thousands of Uyghur and other Turkic uh, women have been forcibly sterilized by the uh, Chinese government. So it goes beyond abortion. It's forced sterilization as well. And I'm sure the communist government, of course, would say, well, this is being done for population control. We have nearly a billion and a half people here. And I know in the past they've rejected the legitimacy of the International Criminal Court. So why do you think an ICC investigation now will make any difference? Well, the ICC, uh, as we can, as we've learned from the uh, Rohingya cases, whether um, it happens, you know, in the country or outside of a country, if there's another country involved, like an ICC member state uh, that is involved in the persecution, in, the, in this case, we have uh, Cambodia and Tajikistan uh, who have deported or prevent, uh, forcibly deported uh, Uyghurs that had sought refuge there to China, where they were then um, sent to uh, concentration camps, prisons, and uh, where their whereabouts are currently unknown in some situations. Well, yes, and on that, we've talked in the past about China sending Uyghur Muslims to detention camps for re-education. Uh, that's what they call it. At least one million have been forced into these camps. You believe it probably could be as high as three million. Uh, do you have evidence of that uh, that you could share with us on what's happening there? Yes, so as far as the concentration camps, our, our organization back in 2000. Uh, 19 had uh, located over uh, 500 uh, concentration camps uh, and prisons and labor camps. And based on the testimonies of former detainees uh, on the layout of these facilities, uh, the size, we estimated that there was at least uh, uh, 1 million, but more likely 3 million, which is the same number that was uh, confirmed by the uh, U.S. Department of Defense. That, that's unbelievable. As many as three million people in detention simply for being an ethnic group that isn't Chinese. Well, on another human rights issue affecting China, Hong Kong. The new national security law, it seems like similar tactics that have been used against Uyghurs in East Turkestan and Christians in mainland China are now being applied to people in Hong Kong. I know pro-democracy activists there are being arrested, but they say their movements are still alive. So. What's the latest? I know you're in touch with them. What are they telling you? So the people of Hong Kong, uh, especially the protesters, have been uh, trying to push back. Uh, but mostly at this point, they're trying to seek uh, international um, you know, involvement and to resolve this issue. Because uh, with this national security law, China can effectively imprison uh, anyone that you know, opposes their rule and label them as terrorists or separatists. But it's going to take a whole of a, uh, international response to pressure China to back off from Hong Kong. And finally, last month, I know President Trump signed the Uyghur Human Rights and Policy Act. So why was that important, Sally? And what more can be done about these human rights violations, not only against Uyghurs, but also the people of Hong Kong? Firstly, the signing of the Uyghur Act was a huge uh, symbolic victory for our people who've been trying to seek justice uh, and put an end to these atrocities. Uh, 
Uh, the act would require uh, the uh, would authorize the president would give authorization to the president to sanction uh, Chinese officials that are responsible for these crimes that are being committed. Uh, it would also, you know, implement uh, you know other follow-up measures uh, to you know investigate the issue. Um, this this act uh, right now it's yet to be officially implemented, and that's why we're trying to. Uh, encourage the U.S. government and other governments to actually do the same thing by sanctioning Chinese officials. Uh, this is another reason why we opened uh, a case at the uh, ICC. Okay, Sally Hudayar, Prime Minister of the East Turkestan government in exile. Thank you. Good to see you again. Thanks for joining us. Likewise. Thank you for having me. On the home front, the tearing down of statues little children gunned down in our major cities. The National Guard called out to protect lives and property in Atlanta. And on the 4th of July, armed black militiamen threatening people at Stone Mountain, Georgia. Everywhere you go, you invade, steal, rape, rob, and kill us. Oh, really? Then you steal people's culture, oh, really? then you have the nerve to have an attitude about it. Where's our reparations? Thank you. Of course, I'm about I like the song. What did I do to you? It's not what you did. What's the answer? Oh, you benefit from me. Go ahead and watch the narrative before you lose your life. So, why this violence and tension now? What is the likelihood that it will turn worse before the November election? Well, here with more is Turning Point USA spokesman, decorated Iraqi war veteran Rob Smith. His new book is Always a Soldier, and it comes out July 21st. Rob, good to talk with you. So you saw the video of those armed militiamen in Georgia. There's a lot of racial tension right now in our country. You've said that racism in America today is not at the level it was during the civil rights struggle of the 1960s. Now, it sure seems that race relations have grown worse, or is that just the current political narrative? What do you think? Um, I think it's the current political narrative that that makes it seem like race relations have grown worse. It, it is very obvious that we're not living in the same world in terms of race relations that we did during the civil rights era. To, the, to even make that comparison is absolutely ridiculous. Now, what we do have is we have a lot of people that have a lot of vested interest in inflaming the racial tensions in this country because they think it helps them politically. Obviously, I'm talking about the left. I'm talking about Democrats. Um, it, it is no mistake that we are seeing all of this strife in the streets. It is no mistake that now Black Lives Matter is on the tip of everybody's tongue during election year. Democrats think that this sort of racial division helps them. Um, they think that, that calling Trump a racist, they think that, um, you know, encouraging blacks to, to engage in this victimhood narrative, they think, that it, they think that it helps them because they are saddlebagged with a weak, unexciting candidate um, and Joe Biden that nobody cares about, nobody's really excited to go out and vote for him, for him. So they have to gin people up and they have to inflame racial tensions in order to keep that 90% African-American Democrat voter base locked down. I think that's what we're seeing right now. How threatened do you think the DNC feels about Trump's ability this November to surpass the 8% black voter support that he received in 2016? Even outside of the Democrats being threatened by Trump and, and his ability to, to perhaps get a much larger percentage of the black vote um, in November, you have a lot of African-Americans, even on the left, that are questioning what Democrats have actually done for black people. Why do these people think 
that they are so um, entitled to our vote. So that conversation is even happening on the left. You have um, entertainers. Diddy said something like the black vote is not for sale. Um, you obviously Kanye West, who's just announced, I don't know how real this is, but that he's running for president. Um, and he specifically says that I am tired of being made to feel like I have to be a Democrat just because I'm African-American. So all of this strife that you're seeing in the streets right now, all of these racial hate crime hoaxes, all of this stuff is all about the left being an absolute fear that they may lose their stranglehold on the African-American community with this administration and in, in, in this election. And it is sad to me that they will gin up such divisiveness because it benefits them politically. You know, USA Today reports that young black voters uh, are not that happy with Joe Biden. They may bolt. Uh, but does that mean they would go for Kanye West if he is uh, serious about running for president? I don't think that uh, will happen at all, honestly. No, number one, Kanye West can't even really get in the ballot um, in most states. So, so that's not really a re real conversation. What is real is that younger black millennials are getting fed up with Democrats. And they look at Joe Biden. They look at this person who has been sitting in Washington for 40 years. They look at somebody who was one of the architects of the 1994 crime bill, which, um, you know, jump-started this era of mass incarceration of particularly young African-American men. So they look at this candidate and they say, man, is this the best the Democrat Party has to offer? How is this person going to change anything when he's already been in office for 40 years? And like I said, I don't know if that means that these younger black voters are going to go um, to, to Kanye West or Trump or anybody else, but I think that there is an opening here for people that are on the right to target some of these voters and to really talk to them about real issues. So what do you think is going to happen uh, in the fall? Are we going to see more violence, more uh, media sensationalism of racism and so forth, uh, or is it going to calm down a bit? Um, I, I think we're definitely going to see more media sensationalism of, of racism. Of There's going to be more hate crime hoaxes. Um, there's going to be more stuff in the street. It just, this is being um, influenced by a lot of the left right now and a lot of the Democrats, because like I said, they think that this helps them. They think that if they can keep black people in this, this, this never-ending permanent state of fear or disarray, it will help them get votes in November. So I don't know that any of this is going to change before November, unfortunately. We have to start coming together as Americans and we as Americans, we need to start taking a really hard look at, at how the media sensationalizes and, and how the media attempts to divide, because the media is very complicit in all this stuff as well. It's not just the Democrat Party. Yes, one race, the human race, one country, the United States of America. Rob Smith of Turning Point USA, your new book, Always a Soldier, comes out July 21st. Thank you for sharing your insights. Thanks so much for having me. No singing. That's the latest order from California Governor Gavin Newsom. The governor is now allowing people in the Golden State to resume worship services inside church buildings. But he says they must not chant or sing in their services because that could spread the COVID-19 virus. Okay, Governor Newsom, singing praises to the Lord is not allowed, but this is... 
I guess Newsom believes singing in church spreads the disease, but shouting political slogans? People are immune from the virus when they do that. Actually, the Coronavirus Task Force reports that marches and protests, not church services, were the primary cause of the recent spike in COVID-19 cases in California and elsewhere. Governor, your executive decree is likely to be challenged in court, and I doubt you'll win that one because of the First Amendment. You can't discriminate by allowing one group of people to assemble, but not others. And discriminatory practices like that can send the wrong signal to young leftists. A group of protesters recently stormed into Grace Baptist Church in Troy, New York, disrupting the service. Earlier, they blocked attendees from entering the building, harassing women and little children. They told one black woman she should be ashamed of attending church there. They threatened to call Child Protective Services on the children's parents. The Black Lives Matter protesters assaulted the church pastor during a scuffle. They say the pastor and his church are racist. Apparently, the black church members don't think so. And a word to the protesters. If you think the church is racist, then don't attend. It's that simple. You have no right to force your views on others by blocking them from attending and worshiping God. Folks, we need to see this for what it really is. Powerful forces are at work in our country, stirring things up. It's really about sensationalizing and controlling the political narrative, causing division for political advantage in an election year. It's all about power, money, and who gets it. Rob Smith of Turning Point USA says, we're being played. I agree. The Bible says in Proverbs 18, 6, 7, that the lips of fools bring the strife and their mouths invite a beating. The mouths of fools are their undoing and their lips are a snare to their very lives. So let's be wise about how we respond to this societal strife. Let's not respond with anger. Let's choose our words carefully. Let's guard our hearts, demonstrate the love of Christ, and not become ensnared by foolishness. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, and Twitter. And until next time, be blessed.